Well, good morning again. Our mission partner that we want to pray for this morning is Mary Ellen's Hearth. Uh, they do an incredible ministry uh, with, uh, they're actually a transition shelter for women and children here in the Montgomery area. And so as we get started this morning and open up God's Word, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 1. If you would like to turn there, let's lift them up in prayer and pray for ourselves. So Father, thank you so much for this moment. We thank you for what your spirit is doing in this place. And as we turn our attention now to your word, we ask that you would speak to us. But before that, we lift up this amazing ministry to you. We pray that you would continue to provide every need that is there. And we are thankful that they are about the business of your kingdom, caring for women and children, the most, some of the most vulnerable among us. And so would you continue to pour out your blessings upon them, even as you bless us here and now. We pray this in Jesus' good and powerful name. And everybody said, amen. amen. This week we continue our sermon series uh, on prayer as we go through the season of Lent. The season of Lent are the 40 days leading up to Easter where we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And last week we started in Ephesians chapter 1 talking about adoration. And I gave you a two-minute challenge last week to, to spend two minutes a day in prayer not asking for anything. Uh, but just praising God for who he is. That's how Paul opens up the letter to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians 1. In verses 1 and 2, he defines or sets out who's a part of this. He says that he is Paul called by the will of God in Christ Jesus. He's writing to the saints who are faithful in Ephesus. And then he identifies God as Father and Jesus as Lord. And then in verse 3, he takes off with blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. And then from there, the next 14 verses are nothing but adoring who God is and what he has done and who we are because of what Jesus Christ has done. He tells us that we are blessed because we are in the beloved in verse 6. And then in verse 7, he says that in him, in him, we have redemption and we have forgiveness. In verse 8, he tells us that in him, uh, he makes known to us the mystery of his will. Walking in God's will should not be a mystery for us anymore because we are in Christ. In verse 11, he says, in him, we have an inheritance. That inheritance is that God is working all things together according to the counsel of his will. And then we see that in him, in verse 13, we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. And then he ends that, that whole section there with the phrase, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of God's glory. And so Paul opens up the book of Ephesians with this just litany of adoration, and then he shifts in verse 15, and he goes into not just adoration, he goes into intercession, in praying for the church at Ephesus. And the prayers that Paul prays here are so deep and so rich, and they are a model to us as well. But when it comes to the topic of uh, intercession, I, I want to say that intercession is one of the most selfless acts that we could ever engage in in life. To pray for another person is such a selfless act. If you think about it, the greatest commodity that we have is time. Time, not money. The thing that is most important to us in life is time. And to spend our time praying for someone else that is such a selfless act. In fact, if we will spend time praying for other people, it'll kill three things in our life. Number one, it'll kill a selfish mindset. Number two, it'll kill consumeristic behavior, which we are addicted to, by the way. And then number three, not only will it kill those, it'll kill an apathetic heart. 
It'll affect you on a heart level to pray for another person. Most of the time, we're willing to invest time in things if we believe that we're going to get something in return, right? I'll invest if I get something in return. To intercede for someone else is to invest in someone, and they are the ones that get the return. What a beautiful thing. What a beautiful thing. And we, the church, we are called to intercede to pray for and on behalf of others, to go before the throne of grace on someone else's behalf and to lay all that's going on in their life before the Father. And that's why it's one of the greatest acts of service. We have to take our hands off our, our life. We have to take our focus off our life. We have to lay down what we think is important or urgent in the moment to lift someone else up. It's a beautiful thing. And in an Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 15, verse 15 and 16 say this. Paul picks up and he says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Right here he tells them, I've been praying for you. I want you to know that I have been interceding on your behalf. Now, I think there, there are three things that have to happen in our life in order for us to intercede on behalf of someone else. Three things. And I like to keep things simple. So I'm going to call it A, B, and C. All right? The A stands for we have to be aware. We have to be aware of what's going on in someone else's life. We have to know. Those of you who come to the Wednesday night pastor's prayer meeting um, know that sometimes we just spend time to say, what, what are you aware of? What do you know that's going on in the world? Pray for that. Pray for what you are aware of. Our awareness of what's happening around us in the world and in other people's lives is very important because it informs us on how to pray. The B stands for believe. We have to simply believe that through prayer, God will act and move in powerful ways. And the question is, do we really believe that? If we really believe that prayer works, then most of the time we will pray. If we really believe. The C stands for care. We have to care enough to pray for another person. Do we care enough to pray? If I'm aware of what's going on in their life and I believe that prayer works, the question then becomes, do I care? Do I care enough to take time to pray? You know, one of the greatest silent sins in our culture today is not hate, it's indifference. It's being indifferent to what is going on in other people's lives and people groups' lives around us, and we just don't care. But Paul here, he cares. He knows what's going on, the good and the bad, the challenges that they're having. He knows all of that. He believes that God can move through prayer. That's why he's telling you, I'm praying for you, and he's about to tell us what he's praying, and that he cares enough not only to pray the prayers but to write them a letter letting them know, this is exactly how I'm strategically praying for you right now. And so you pick it up at the end of verse 16. He says, I'm praying for you. Here's verse 17. He says, here's what he's praying. I'm praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. He says three things right here in this one text. The first thing that he says I'm praying for you for is I'm praying that you understand the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when Paul uses the phrase, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, if you like to write points out, point number one would be this. What Paul wants them to understand is who the Father was for Jesus is exactly who the Father is for them and for us. Who the Father was for Jesus is who the Father 
is right now for us. Whenever you're reading scripture and, and, and you read that phrase, the God of Abraham be with you. When someone's saying that prayer, it's the God of Abraham. What they're saying is that all of who God was for Abraham, I want him to be that for you. Whenever he says the God of David, all for who God was to David and the relationship that David had with the father, he says, I want that for you. Or the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Or the God of Jacob, meaning the God of Israel. All of that for you. And right here he says he's the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. All that the Father was for Jesus, the Father wants to be for us right here, right now. Jesus made these statements like the Father and I are one. He wants that for you. Jesus said that I am in him and he is in me. He wants that for you. Jesus said I don't do anything except what the Father tells me to do. He wants that for you. And Paul is praying into that for the church in Ephesus. Just as the father had his relationship with the son, I want you to have that same relationship. The same relationship. So the close proximity that we see Jesus walking with the father in, we can have. And we can walk in it. A lot of times we just think we're kind of second class citizens when it comes to spirituality and Jesus was really, really close. And the heart of God is I want to walk with you just like I walked with my son. That's why I sent him to the earth to be a model for you in that. And so Paul is praying. He's saying, I want you to walk with the Father just as Jesus walked with the Father. I want you to have access to the knowledge of his will. I want you to have access to the affections of his heart. Do you know how God feels about you? Do you know how God thinks about you? He says, I want you to have access to the power of his might. So when Paul says, I'm praying that you understand that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ is with you. He's saying all that the Father was for Jesus, I want him to be with you. That's why Jesus would make those radical statements like, you know, yeah, you've seen me do some things, but you're gonna do greater things. The second thing he prays for, he says not only the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, he gives him another title, he says the Father of glory. The Father of glory, I define glory often. God's glory is when God is on display, particularly when his holiness is on display because it's so foreign to this world we live in. When God's holiness is on display, he says, you gotta remember he is the father of glory. Again, if you wanna take notes, point number two would be he is the father who makes himself known. Whenever you read that word glory in scripture, it's what it means. God is on display. He is making himself known. He is showing himself once again. Now, it's true that every one of us experience in life moments of hiddenness, Right? We experience these moments when we're saying, God, where are you? God, what are you doing? God, what are you up to? But what we have to understand about those moments of hiddenness, sometimes God uses moments of hiddenness to get our attention, but then uh, I believe every time that we experience those moments, when we experience those moments of hiddenness, what God is doing is he's preparing us to see God's glory, the Father's glory in some way. He's preparing our heart and he's getting our focus so that we can see the Father on display in the world around us or in people around us or even in us and through us. Jesus was the one who was hanging on the cross saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's a moment of hiddenness. What happens next? Death, then tomb. And then what happens next? Resurrection glory. God on display. So even when we're in those moments when we feel like God has forsaken us, we're not sure where God is, just know that that moment is preparing you for a moment of glory. Life is not a cosmic game of hide and seek. It's not. He's not trying to hide for you. He may hide for a moment to get your attention, but he's also preparing you to show you something very special. 
And so in these moments, Paul right here is praying for him. He said, I want you to understand. I want you to understand who the Father is. I want you to understand he is the Father of glory. He is the Father that is making himself known. He is the Father that is on display all around you. The problem, many times, the reason why we cannot see who this God is is because we have a preconceived idea about who he is, how he works, and how he moves in the world, meaning we want God on our terms. And what Paul is praying is that you would see the Father of glory. You would see how he has displayed himself throughout human history, but you would also see how he is displaying himself all around you right now. That's what Paul is praying for in this moment. He wants them to see the Father and what he is doing all around them. The third thing that he says here, he says, I'm praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, that who the Father was for Jesus, he is for you, the Father of glory, the Father that's on display, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. May give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. Now, the interesting thing about that phrase, the word knowledge there does not mean intellectual knowledge alone. The word knowledge there means experiential knowledge. He's saying, may you experience the presence of God. Again, if you want to take notes and write down a point, point number three would be we receive wisdom and revelation when we experience his presence. When we experience his presence. So many times we reduce Christianity down to a mental exercise where I give a mental assent that I believe there's a God out there somewhere. That is not what he's talking about here. What he's talking about here is the experiential knowledge that we have when we experience the presence of God in powerful ways. And in those moments, he gives, them, gives us the wisdom we need to live life, but also the revelation we need to continue to learn and grow more like him as we learn to know him. Psalm 34 verse 8 does not say, see that the Lord is good. A lot of times that's how we talk about faith. Just see, just see it, just see it. Like it's a mental thing. See that the Lord is good. No, Psalm 34 verse 8 says what? Taste and see that the Lord is good. Taste, experience him, and then you will see that he is good. Right? And that's what he wants for us. He wants us to experience who he is in his presence. And when we do that, we receive the wisdom from heaven that we need to live life. And he is revealed more and more to us by the power of the Spirit. You see, so many times, again, we think Christianity is just a mental thing. Don't get me wrong. You have to have correct orthodoxy. That's the word, orthodoxy. That is right belief. But God wants to affect us not just on one level, but on three levels. Yes, we, God wants to teach us what is orthodoxy, what is right doctrine, right belief. That's very, very important. But God also wants to, um, us to experience him in what's also called orthopraxy, which is right practice, right living, that we live out what we believe. And then not only that, there's orthopathy, right affections, right emotions. God wants, to affect, uh, God wants us to experience him, excuse, us, excuse me, uh, on us, me and the Holy Spirit. Yeah. <laughs> That was good, I know, that was good, yeah. He wants us to experience him on an emotional level. That's why if you look throughout human history, throughout church history, there are, there are four actually main disciplines, if you think about it. There's scripture, that's orthodoxy, right belief, that's where we get right belief. There's prayer and fasting together. That's what helps us live obedient lives, orthopraxy. And then there's singing. We actually have the hymn book of Israel, you have it in your Bible, whether you have a real one or a fake one on your phone. It's the book of Psalms, right? Y'all got to loosen up a little bit. I know it's daylight savings time. It's, it's 11 o'clock. Come on. Come on. Right? But singing, singing affects us. Orthopathy affects us on an effectual level, on an emotional level. 
That's why many times when we're singing, we're singing these things. You know, I believe you'll do it again. We're, we're singing that it's as if our heart, our emotions, we're saying it out loud, and it's as if the song is dragging us emotionally to God. So, so many times we, we sing things we don't even believe yet. Yeah? Or we sing things we don't live yet. But he's affecting us. We're experiencing him on an emotional level, and he's pulling us toward him and who he is, giving us wisdom and revelation so that we can live it and so that we can know it and have right belief. I mean, my favorite example of that is, you know, that, that praise chorus, I surrender all. <laughs> When we sing that song, you know, I just kind of grin, you know, because I know we're saying the words, I surrender all, but every one of us is thinking, I surrender some, <laughs> you know, we are, we are, I mean, we act all holy when we sing it, right? <laughs> and the truth is, I mean, God is doing something in our life on an intellectual level and in how we live it out, but also in our emotions. And many times singing pulls us toward him in obedience. And it pulls us toward him as he's revealing himself so that we have orthodoxy, right, belief. And God is moving in our life in all three areas. All three areas. That's why he wants us to experience his presence. So that we have the wisdom and the revelation and the knowledge of who he is. And this is what Paul is praying for the church right here. He is praying that you would know who the Father is. That the, the same Father that was the Father for Jesus is your Father. In every way, in every way, he wants you to know that the Father is making himself known all around you right now. And when you are in his presence, he is revealing himself more and more on how you live life and who he is, wisdom and revelation. Paul here is praying for this church, and it's a little more than bless their heart. I don't care how many times you see the commercial. No. If you're watching and you're not from Alabama, you don't understand what that means. <laughs> the question is, so what? So what? Okay, so, so Paul is praying this for the church. So what? We have to understand, if, if we're not walking in verse 17, we cannot live out verses 18 through 20. And so here's where Paul continues. He says, I'm praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of him. Verse 18, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that's what happens when you're living, verse 17, that so that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. You may know what is the hope to which he has called you. That word hope there means confidence, confident expectation. You may walk in your calling with confidence. That's why this is important. When you know who the Father is and you know who he is to you, you know how he's revealing himself, you're walking, you're experiencing him and experiencing his presence as he's given you wisdom and revelation, you walk confidently in who it is that God has called you to be. But in those moments when you have an identity crisis and you're not sure who you are as a Christian or you're not sure what it is that God is calling you to do and who it is that God is calling you to be, that's when we've lost sight of verse 17. We've lost sight of the Father We've lost sight of how he's moving in our life and moving around us, and we're not experiencing the wisdom and revelation that comes from being in his presence. We've lost sight of it. And so many times that's what happens in our lives. We lose sight of who he really is, and it affects us. We don't have any confidence in being who he's called us to be and doing what it is that he's called us to do. Several, many, many years ago, I was a young pastor. 
Some of you think I'm young now. <laughs> Bless your heart. Uh, <laughs> Many years ago, I was a pastor. And I don't know if you know this, every now and then issues come up in the church. And there were some issues in the church. And there were some people in the church that decided they, they didn't want to preach from, from this book. They wanted to preach from other books. And so I had to confront it. And I did. And while we're in the process of confronting it, the issue, by the way, 30% of the church ended up leaving over this. While we're in the process of confronting the issue, it didn't matter, by the way, because we grew right through it. While we were confronting the issue, people started talking. They said, Chris, if we confront this, people are going to get mad. Chris, if they get mad, they'll stop giving to the church. And if they get mad and they stop giving to the church, Chris, they, they're going to leave. And I started listening to this. All of a sudden, I got my eyes off of who the father was. I said, oh, no. Oh, Lord. Lord, whoa. how can I, what can I do? Uh, Lord, Lord, I need to do something. I don't know what, I, what should I do, what could I do, what could I? I was, I, I was having this beautiful, beautiful, just personal panic pity party. It was beautiful. And all the questions I was asking was, I, 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 me, me, what, what can I do, what can I do? And it was about that time God tapped me on the shoulder. He said, excuse me, little pastor. When did this become about you? He says, you focus on me. You be who I've called you to be. Let me be your father. You do what I've called you to do. I'll take care of the rest. And he did. And he does every time. I think we just sang about that a moment ago. Every single time. But when we lose sight of verse 17, who the Father is to us, in the fullness of his fatherhood toward us, just like toward Jesus, when we lose sight of who we are in him, our confidence in walking out our calling goes out the window. And Paul here, he says, no, no, no. I want you to be confident. I want you to know who you are. He goes on. He says this. Back in verse 18, having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. You see, we have to remember who we are in him. We are his inheritance because we are his saints. Now, being a child of God is not something you're born. It's something you're born again into, by the way. That's John 1.12. Not everybody who walks the planet is a child of God. I'm sorry, that's a big misconception out there today. Being a child of God is something that happens when you are born again into the kingdom. And once you are born again into the kingdom, you become one of his saints. And when you are one of his saints, you are God's inheritance. Our inheritance is he's working all things according to the counsel of his will. That's earlier in chapter 1. But we are his inheritance. And he loves us. And he's with us. And he's walking with us. And one day he's going to gather all of his children together. And we are going to be with him forever. But until that day, we have to remember who we are in him. I love it when people ask me the question. They say, Chris, uh, am I welcomed in your church? I love that question. The answer is yes, but you need to know why. You're welcomed here 
because you are wanted by somebody. He wants you to be a, one of his saints because he wants you to be a part of his eternal inheritance that is in the saints. We have to know who he is so that we can walk confidently in the calling that we have in him. And we have to know who he is so that we do not forget who we are. We are the redeemed ones, the reconciled ones. We are eternally loved by the Father. And he wants his best for us. Not the best as we define it, but the best as he defines it. He goes on in his prayer, having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And then verse 19, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the power, to the working of his great might that is in Christ, that is in Christ. You see, when we understand verse 17, we can live out verses 18, 19, and 20 which means we are confident in our calling, we know who we are as his children, and the third thing that he says here is that we experience and walk in God's power. We experience and walk in God's power. Sometimes I look at Christians, sometimes I may even look at myself, and I just wonder, do we enjoy living life like a kite caught in a hurricane? Just blowing around, by everything that's happening around us, or every feeling we have in us, absolutely out of control, powerless to do anything. Many times that's how we live, if we're being honest. We're just being blown around by every feeling that we have, blown around by, uh, by bitterness, blown around by unforgiveness, letting other people control our lives. Just powerless. And right here, Paul is saying, listen, I want you to know who the Father is. I want you to know who you are in Him. I want you to continue to experience His presence so that you get the wisdom and revelation that you need so that you're not just tossed around by every wind and wave of doctrine. That's what he says in chapter 4. So you understand who you are and you walk in His power. While we may experience life where we're being blown around by every wind and wave, Last time I checked, Jesus was pretty good at calming the winds and waves. And that same power and that same Holy Spirit lives in us. And that's why Paul is praying. Paul is praying because, listen, guys, there are times when we believe things that are not of God. I don't care where we read it or what expert told us, Oprah. There are, things, there are times when we practice things, we live things that are not of God. And there are times when we feel things not of God. And so what do we do? Do we become aware of those? We believe that God can do something, but we just see it as our job as the church to condemn? Or do we care? Do we care enough to intercede on the behalf of others? Do we care enough to slow down just a little bit and become aware of the pain that's happening around us, the pain even in our own families, and acknowledge it and dare believe that if we prayed, God may move and God may touch and God may heal. But the question is, do we care enough to do that? 
Do we care enough to slow down and pray for another person? It's my challenge to you this week. Not just spend time in adoration. But what if you spent time just lifting up the needs of others simply because you cared enough about them? And you believed to the core of your being that God could do something. What would it be? I think there's a reason why we saw people in the parking lot after the 8.30 service pray. What would it be if we simply cared enough to pray? Prayer can do anything that God can do if we just believe. So Father, would you give us a heart that cares? Every one of us, whether we're in this room or watching online, every one of us, there are things we believe that are not of you, there are things we practice that are not of you, there are things we feel that are not of you, and instead of condemning, we choose to pray for one another. And so, Lord, I pray that we would see you as the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, that who you were for Jesus, you will be for us. Lord, I pray that you would be the Father of glory the Father on display for each and every one of us. I pray that as we experience your presence, that you would continue to give us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation, that we may know what it is that you want us to know, and that we may see you as you want to be seen. And in so doing, having the eyes of our heart and light, that we may be confident in our calling that we may know who we are as your children, as your inheritance, and that we may experience and walk in your power. Lord, I pray that for us. And more than that, I pray that we would pray it for others to the glory of your name. 